Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from across Ukraine. Continue analysing the claims and counterclaims surrounding the downed Russian plane in Belgorod. And we hear about the time Roland Oliphant met the newly imprisoned Russian nationalist and war criminal, Igor Gerkin. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody will break us. We're strong. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 25th of January, one year and 334 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor, Francis Durnley, and senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Sure. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. So before we start talking about the oil terminal, let's just continue on the the emerging news about the plane from yesterday. I say emerging news because it's the, it's the repercussions of. So the IL-76 Russian Aleutian transport plane that was shot down yesterday in Belgorod, about 20 k's north of the border with Ukraine, so inside Russia, shot down allegedly with 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war on board. That is contested, that piece of information. So the latest is the black boxes from the plane are said to have been recovered. Russia's state news agency TASS has said that they're going to be flown to Moscow to be analysed by the Defence Ministry. That bit might be absolutely true. Whether or not we ever hear anything from that and whether or not we can believe anything that comes out of it, we don't know. But that bit so far probably seems fairly plausible. Now, just as a reminder, Moscow has accused Ukraine of using air defence missiles to shoot down the IL-76 in the Belgorod region. They said it was US Patriot missiles or the German-supplied RST air defence systems. How they know that? I mean, it is possible to know that from the telemetry, if um, if you are able to, to hoover up all the electromagnetic activity in the area but they came out very very quickly with those i would imagine and this is just me speculating i think they came out very quickly to name those two systems because it feeds into this narrative of western weapons being used inside russia which they see as a, as a bit of a touch point and does seem to be an area that some people consider provocative escalatory etc etc but with, there's no further details about what happened whether it was missiles mechanical failure pilot error we don't we do not know Now, Kyiv today has uh, reiterated that it received neither a written nor verbal request from Russia to secure the airspace around Belgorod. That came from Ukraine's military intelligence spokesperson Andrei Yusov, who's speaking to Radio Radio Svoboda. 
He said, unfortunately, we can assume various scenarios, including provocation, as well as the use of Ukrainian prisoners as a human shield for transporting ammunition and weapons for S-300 systems. Now, I think he's speculating there, just as I had. So you've got to be very careful to differentiate between what we're reporting as, as probable facts and speculation. But Ukraine's chief ombudsman, Dmitry Lubinets, he has said photographs and video footage from the site of the um, of the crash. He says disprove Russia's claim that there were 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war on board. So Mr. Uh, Lubinets is Ukraine's parliament's human rights commissioner. He said there were no signs that there were such a large number of people on the plane. I'm not an expert, but if there were even photos and videos of our prisoners of war, Russia would have already posted it. Now, responding again, uh, yesterday, Ukraine's military intelligence agency, the HUR, said that there were only five people killed in the plane. Andrei Yusov, the spokesperson, again speaking to Radio Svoboda, said there were just five in the morgue in Belgorod, a number which he said corresponds with the size of the crew needed for an IL-76. Again, how would you know what's in the morgue in Belgorod? So just got to be very careful. They might have their sources, but treat everything as we always say, pinch salt. He also said Russia's FSB security service expelled investigators from Russia's Ministry of Emergency Situations from the crash site before they'd completed their investigation. He said there really should have been several VIP officials on board, as in on board the plane, from the military political representation of the aggressor state. Their names are known and will be named and materials will be provided as part of the international investigation. But at the last moment, the FSB ordered them not to board the plane and use other modes of transport. Okay. The commander of Ukraine's air force accused Russia of spreading propaganda about the incident to discredit Ukraine and reduce its international support. So this is Lieutenant General Mikhailo Oleshuk. He, speaking on Telegram, said throughout the day on January 24th, Frantic Russian propaganda directed a fake stream of information to an external audience trying to discredit Ukraine in the eyes of the international community. The goal is obvious. They want to reduce international support for our country. This will not work. Ukraine has the right to defend itself and destroy the aggressor's air assets. Now, we're told the UN Security Council will hold an emergency meeting to discuss the the incident at uh, 1700 hours, so 5, 5 p.m. Eastern Time, New York, today. That will probably be attended by Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. He's in New York for talks on Israel and um, Ukraine anyway, so he will probably turn up there. John Kirby, the U.S. national security spokesman, said last night the U.S. did not have a position on who was responsible for bringing down the aircraft. He said, we just don't have enough information to comment on this plane crash. The Ukrainians are claiming one thing, the Russians are claiming another, and we just don't know enough to comment on it. Last night, President Zelensky, he said, we need to establish all the clear facts as much as possible, given that downing of the plane occurred on Russian territory, which is beyond our control. Then responding, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov, he was speaking this morning. He said Russia would welcome an international investigation into the incident. Easy to say. He said they would welcome that. But somewhat, in my mind, somewhat obviously said of President Zelensky's comments, if he means an international investigation into the criminal actions of the Kiev regime, it is definitely needed. Like, no, Dmitry, he didn't mean that. It is still, this is Peskov again, it is still not completely clear what happened. Only yesterday, investigators began to study the remains of the plane. The fact 
not sure it's a fact, Dmitry, but he says, the fact that the Ukrainians killed their prisoners, their citizens, who should have been home literally in a day, is, of course, an absolutely monstrous act. I can't wrap my head around this. Ukraine has opened a war crimes investigation into the shootdown. The SBU Security Service, speaking to uh, RBC Ukraine news agency, uh, said it had commenced criminal proceedings as part of the inquiry and was assessing the circumstances of the crash. They said the investigation is being carried out under Article 438 of the Criminal Code of Ukraine, which is violation of the laws and customs of war. So it'd be too glib to say... The blame game carries on, but there is a lot of, uh, he said, she said, we just don't know. I don't think, even if there is a any kind of investigation at the site, I don't think we will know um, it, to any real degree for any time soon, unless and until possibly either the US or NATO make a comment about what they would have seen um, in terms, as I said earlier on, about telemetry, uh, about if there were missiles in the air. As for who was on board and numbers, I think it'll be a long time before we hear anything there at all. So we will update you as we uh, as we get more. Now they're moving to, uh, to updates. There's been another Ukrainian attack on Russian energy infrastructure. So a Russian oil terminal on the Black Sea was blown up last night in a Ukrainian drone strike. Video footage from the scene showed a drone flying towards the Tuapsi uh, oil depot in Russia's Krasnodar region. So this is about 150 k southeast of the Kirsch Bridge on the Black Sea coast there. Sources in Ukraine's SBU security service told RBC Ukraine that it was responsible for the blast. And the city, Russian city mayor, Sergei Boyko, said there'd be no casualties. Fire was extinguished uh, just before 5 a.m. local time today. Now, the prominent Baza uh, telegram channel said explosions had been heard in the city before the fire started at the depot as air defences attempted to engage, um, well, they said the drone. I don't know if there were more more than one. Um, just for context, Ukraine has now, that's now four, well, they've attacked four other oil depots in Russia just this month alone, including, you'll remember a couple of days ago, the one in St. Petersburg, more than 700 miles north of the, um, of the border. That is an interesting interesting point to note when we talk about you hear people talking about stalemate and the war's going nowhere and and nothing's happening that's a very land-centric view which is probably quite accurate at the moment there's almost no move at all in the lines on the ground both sides literally digging in very very heavy fortifications ukraine also putting in their equivalent of the sorovkin lines they haven't given it a name yet but they are absolutely fortifying their line particularly uh, in the east and south so not much happening on the in the ground in terms of movement. But as I said before, look at what's happening in the Black Sea. Uh, drone attacks there and other, other attacks, long-range precision attacks by Ukraine, essentially forcing the Black Sea fleet, Russia's fleet, further east. So you could say that, that Ukraine is dominating the, the maritime domain there, the Black Sea fleet. Look at also the on the air side. This is the, I'd say, the fifth attack on Russian energy infrastructure by Ukraine from the uh, from the air. So, okay, don't, not the air domain, but in terms of attacks on energy infrastructure, there's a lot happening there as well. So the war is not letting up anywhere at all. There's a very great shortage of artillery ammunition and other ammunition at the front that we've that we've reported on many many times. But there is a lot going on in this war. War is more than just movement on the ground. There's a there's a, a lot going on. So th- th- I think the narrative that that it's it's a stalemate and the war is not progressing and both sides are bogged down, I think is false. 
Now, about the same time as that attack last night, a Russian drone attack on Ukraine's uh, port in Odessa, the southern city, injured six people. Ukraine's Air Force said it shot down 11 of 14 drones launched by Russia at uh, Odessa and Mykolaiv, or rather, sorry, launched at the Odessa and Mykolaiv oblasts last night. And then finally, just this morning, three major Ukrainian state organisations have reported cyber attacks or failures in their IT systems. So Ukraine's state-run energy company Naftagaz said that a large-scale cyber attack had taken out websites and a call centre. Ukraposhta, the National Postal Service, reported a significant technical failure in its IT systems. The head, Igor Smolyansky, a chap I've interviewed, very nice guy, he said last night there was an attack on the information infrastructure of our partners. And then Transbezpeka, the government agency providing transport and traffic security, also this morning reported technical malfunctions on its website. Comes in the wake a few a few weeks ago of the of the strike against the uh, God, what was it called? What's the big telecom provider called? Oh, um, <sighs> you know God. the one about the mobile network. Yeah, Kiev. I know what you mean. Okay. Sorry, David. Let's move on. Let's thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dom Nichols, Francis Sternley. What have you been looking at today? Thanks, David. The breaking news in the past hour is that Igor Gherkin, that prominent nationalist so stinging in his criticisms of the way in which Putin and the army had pursued the war in Ukraine and even once muted the possibility of running for president in this election, has been convicted by a Moscow court of inciting extremism and sentenced to four years in a penal colony. Now, to remind listeners, he's no anti-war activist, but someone who, like Pogosian, believed that the war could have been being fought much more effectively and even more brutally than it has. It bears repeating that he is yet another scalp of relatively effective, in inverted commas, commanders in Ukraine since 2014, who have now been defenestrated or worse by the Kremlin. Indeed, many analysts would argue that Gherkin and Prigozhin were the most effective commanders who've served since the annexation of Crimea, though it is, of course, a very short list. Gherkin was the army veteran and former FSB officer who played that key role in the Russian annexation of Crimea and then in the Donbass War as an organiser of militant groups in the Donetsk People's Republic. Bogosian, of course, managed to achieve some symbolically significant successes in Bakhmut. Yet look where they are now. One is sentenced to a penal colony, the other was blown out of the sky. We, like many others, have been watching Gherkin's case to see the extent to which the Kremlin tolerated criticism of the war effort. There was a time, listeners will recall, when it was semi-permitted, perhaps when it was trying to mobilise more pro-war feeling, but things definitely changed, unsurprisingly, after Pogosian's mutiny. As Reuters summarises, Gherkin was remanded in custody in July last year after setting up the Club of Angry Patriots to save Russia, from which he said was the danger of a systemic turmoil due to military failures in Ukraine and jostling in an elite to eventually succeed Putin. In one of his many outspoken tirades, again, quite similar to Bogosian, in a post on July 18th on his Telegram channel, which was followed by 760,000 people, Gherkin peppered Putin with personal insults and urged him to pass power to someone truly capable and responsible. That was seemingly the last straw, and he will now remain an outcast from the regime. We believe he may have a fair bit of freedom within his category of punishment. It's not a prison as such, but more like a guarded hall of residence. Whether he's able to communicate with the outside world 
remains to be seen. But nevertheless, he is evidently out. And uh, I don't think this will come as a huge shock to anyone. in In isolation, I doubt this will draw massive headlines either. But it's one of the benefits of covering this war daily to see the patterns emerge more clearly. This should be seen in the context of those various bills in the State Duma we discussed yesterday, I think, or the day before, going through uh, and some of those hefty sentences handed down to those who've protested the regime in some way. It's all part of a grand clampdown that we have seen in recent months. But in other news, we reported yesterday that the final hurdle for Sweden joining NATO seems to have been lifted with the Turkish parliament granting permission from them and Viktor Orban saying that he suddenly had no objections in that tweet I quoted in my final thought yesterday. Evidently, much work is being done behind the scenes to try and bring Hungary back on side, at least publicly. And as a consequence, they are suddenly becoming remarkably more amenable. Hungary has signalled today that it will also drop its opposition to the EU's proposed 54 billion dollar aid package for Ukraine, according to Finland's foreign minister. She said that I'm very hopeful we will finally be able to approve aid for Ukraine. If not, we will, of course, find another solution. It'll be interesting taking Joe's thoughts on this and what he's hearing about what may have been agreed with Orban behind closed doors in order to facilitate this shift when we next have him on. But staying with Europe, Latvia's president has said he supports banning Russian grain imports into the country in a riposte to the prime minister, who said a unilateral ban was pointless. Its neighbour, Estonia, has also been vocal today, with its army chief, General Martin Harem, telling Bloomberg that NATO has systematically underestimated Russia, emphasising that it is a able to produce several million artillery shells and recruit hundreds of thousands of new soldiers every year. He said it was previously thought that Russia could only produce one million artillery shells. A lot of people thought they couldn't go beyond that. Today, the facts tell us otherwise, he said. They can produce even more, many times more, ammunition. He also warned that Russia could attack the Baltic states within one year of the war in Ukraine ending. Lots of different timelines being thrown about, of course. And I would argue that's one of the most notable shifts that we've seen in the first month of 2024 is how many countries have been setting their own understandings of a timetable were this war to go sour, Russia to win, and then how it might try and escalate things further into Europe. A definite new narrative has formed with various different responses to that. And just lastly, there was a time when the Zaporizhia power plant was covered almost daily on the podcast, but concerns over it have quietened down in recent months. But some news today relating to the impact of losing that reactor to the Russians from the Ukrainian perspective. Kiva said it will build four reactors this year to replace the Zaporizhia plant. Energy Minister Galushenko said the four were part of an expansion of the Hermelitsky plant in that region. The three power plants which remain in the Ukrainian-controlled territory produce, of course, more than 55% of its electricity. And Galushenko told Reuters that construction would begin in the summer or autumn, two using Russian-made technology imported from Bulgaria and two using Western technology from the firm Westinghouse. I'm always interested in these examples of long-term projects, which are suggestive of investment as well as indicative of Ukrainian attempts to build a new future in a sense. But a more pessimistic angle, of course, is that Kiev doesn't believe they're going to take back the Zaporizhia plant anytime soon or ever, and that it is urgently requiring power from other sources. We shall see, but it's an interesting story, David, and it's good to be able to talk about this aspect of the energy front once again.
Well, thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Welcome, Senior Foreign Correspondent Roland Oliphant. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can we start just with some of the thoughts? I mean, we, we were having a chat earlier this morning, so many hours before we went on air. And obviously with, with caveat, I mean, it'd be basically very good to get your thoughts. And I know we're very, very early on in understanding what has happened with this plane that's gone down over Russia. We know that accusations are flying back and forth. We know that there's a lot we can't trust what are your general thoughts? What would you tell listeners that we should be paying attention to, that how we should think about approaching this in the next few days and weeks as this rumbles on? With appropriate caution and things, I mean, I, I always kind of apply Occam's razor to these kinds of situations. Like, generally speaking, the simplest explanation is usually the one that turns out to be true. That's not the same as looking at a situation saying that's the simplest explanation, therefore that is true, because, you know, anything could be true in war strange things happen i mean correct me if i'm wrong i mean the last thing i saw was that the russians had said there were prisoners of war on this plane and the ukrainians didn't quite deny knocking it out of the sky is that are we still at that point i've just been in a in an interview is that pretty much where we are dom would you like to give us just your thoughts there just to bring roland up to speed just to bring roland yes up to speed. dom is nodding at me yes yeah i mean i mean i think i think that says a lot to be honest i mean it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if that's what happened it went down over over belgorod region there's one side that needs to shoot down aircraft over belgorod and that's the ukrainians because they're not operating their own aircraft over belgorod and there's a lot that hasn't come out a lot that's not clear and i've learned in the school of hard knocks never to take anything that the russian ministry of defense says at face value I'm very used to them lying, but that that doesn't mean this doesn't happen. I mean, to me, it's 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 this is sadly the kind of thing that happens in war, and and, and the reality of war is that horrible, nasty blunders, mistakes, embarrassing things do happen, including accidentally killing your own prisoners. There's all this stuff in the background. I saw, I saw the Ukrainians saying, "Well, well, you know, previously the Russians had told us to guarantee the safety of that airspace when they were flying stuff down. They didn't do it this time, and so on. That kind of stuff takes a long time into the weeds to come out and get to the bottom of. But I, at the moment, seeing that lack of a, of a clear Ukrainian denial, that makes me think that probably that is what happened. The Ukrainians spotted an aircraft coming in, a military aircraft. They decided to target it. And apparently, if the Russians would be believed, a bunch of prisoners of war have very sadly died on their way to exchange. Roland, can we move on and talk about Igor Gerkin? We haven't spoken about him in a while. Francis, just then, I think as you were coming into the studio, was recounting the fact that from today he's been in prison for four years. What's your reaction to that? What do you think this means for him, his movement and his place in this in, in Russian pro-war propaganda in society? So Igor Gerkin... Is I find him a fascinating character, to be fair. I mean, no matter which way you you look at him and his crimes, and he is, we were just speaking about an aircraft being shot down. He is one of only three people who've been convicted for the shoot-down of MH17 in 2014. It will, by the way, be the 10-year anniversary of that in July. But he's he was always interesting because he was this kind of true believer. He kind of, he, he really lives this strange melange of ideologies which combine you know imperial russian nostalgia orthodoxy pan-slavicism nostalgia for the soviet union somehow he's able to get all those together he's not alone in this right i mean he represents a certain milieu he's quite extreme in it but this idea of of kind of russian mystical destiny and he's also one of these odd chaps who just loves war i mean i met him once 
and I asked him about that, and he was like, you know, this is my was his fourth or fifth war. He'd been in Chechnya, he'd been in Transnistria during the nineties. He fought on the Serbian side in Bosnia, and he was saying, you know, wow, well, twenty fourteen, you know, I understand what war is. Don't say that I'm 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 some kind of war junkie, but he was. I mean, he 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 loves war. He understands it. He kind of lives and breathes it. And he was one of these people who was criticizing the Kremlin from that quite odd position from the beginning of this invasion sort of 2022 saying you should have done this earlier this was always going to happen you didn't grasp it and by the way I hope you succeed but I don't think you're going to and he just kept on pouring this cold war and score on the Kremlin which was personal really because back in 2014 when he led the the first kind of proper insurgency in 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 Donbass. So he led like 50 guys across the border one night and they seized the town of Slavyansk. And that was the kind of, he said it himself, he claimed credit for pulling the trigger on that war. He's responsible for all of this in his little way. He, he achieved a great deal of fame back then. And he was eventually pulled out eastern Ukraine and told to shut up. And that, I understand, what one of the stories is that was the price for the quote-unquote separatists, the Donetsk People's Republic, receiving proper professional Russian military help. So the intervention at Ilovaisk, I'm sorry, I'm going back into the weeds. Basically, the Russians came across the border in August 2014 and they just, they destroyed the Ukrainian advance, basically, and turned the tables of the war. And one of the stories was that the Kremlin wanted Gherkin out because he was such a loudmouth, because he was so critical, because he clearly had these ambitions for power himself. And he came back to Moscow and he set up this organization of veterans, or the Novorossiya movement, I think he called it. And when I met him, he said to me, he said to me something along the lines of like, I'll talk to you, but only because like, no one else will talk to me. I'm literally banned from the airwaves. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not allowed anywhere. There's literally a black, I'm on a blacklist no Russian media will touch me. Like last summer, I was this, any, anyone would talk to me. Um, and I think that says a lot about where the Kremlin sees its threats, right? Um, it, it's not a great fan of liberal oppositionists and things like that. But, but your real threat is on the right. It is a serious threat. He's a minority and he's a fringe, but he represents a certain constituency. Um, and he's someone who's not afraid to, to use force. You know, he's the kind of person who, you know had that grasp that fundamental truth about power which is that really it's the men with the guns who are going to decide stuff right so you could kind of see in his rhetoric these references to 1917 and lenin realizing the same thing power is lying in the streets of st petersburg waiting for someone to pick it up he was waiting for this post-war collapse of the russian state in which he could insert himself and his movement could take up arms and decide things so it was inevitable he was going to be put back in his box in a way. I'm sure he's still got some kind of friends or some kind of people who feel a bit of sympathy for him in, in the powers that be. So maybe his detention will be relatively comfortable and so on. Maybe he'll be released and used again at some point. And that wouldn't, that wouldn't surprise me at all. But no, this was someone who had to be put back in his box. He'd crossed the line too many times. And um, at some point, whoever was letting him talk... I was told that's enough of him. But a, a war junkie, a, I mean, we know that he ordered people shot in Slavia. He shot his own men for looting under a Stalin-era law from 1941. We know that he oversaw, you know, probably the murders of, of Ukrainian councillors when he was there. He almost certainly, you know, 
knew he knew about the shootdown of MH17. His line on MH17 was always the Opolchenia didn't do it. The Opolchenia means like the militia. That was what he was in charge of, the, the so-called Donetsk People's Republic, which is a mix of like Russian desperados and volunteers and local guys, right? But, and the implication of that was he was saying, I didn't do it. That's all I'm saying. The clear implication, what he was saying without quite winking was the Russian army did it, but I can't say that. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was, I, I was interested to see he got four years. And, and I, I imagine the Kremlin will be thinking about whether to take him out of the cupboard again at, at some point in future. So you don't think this is the last we'll hear, well, in the near future any, anyway, from Igor Gherkin? I, don't, I mean, I, not necessarily. You know, I, I don't have a crystal ball. I mean, maybe he'll be boxed up and, 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 and he will never speak again and he'll be one of these people who's so frightened and intimidated. It will be people, people, you know, he'll, he'll get out of prison in 20 years' time, kind of journalists will come knocking on his flat in Moscow and there'll be this old man saying, why don't you tell us that story? Oh, I can't talk, I can't talk or something. But I just, no, I think, I think he's still, he's useful. He obviously had a lot of, Somebody in the in within the establishment within the FSB or whatever was providing him with some kind of roof or protection or patronage, and he can be useful. The Kremlin found a use for him. They might find a use. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. From again. Roland, thank you so much for your insight there. Let's move now then to our final thoughts. Uh, we'll come back to you, Roland, of course. But Dominicals, would you like to go first? So I note that in the last hour, Denmark has made a 91 million Danish kroner, about $13 million uh, package of aid for Ukraine in terms of cybersecurity aid, specifically for the Ukrainian MOD and Ukrainian military. This comes from the Kiev Independent. This aid package is through the established Estonian-Luxembourg-led IT coalition for Ukraine, which I've not heard of before. So we're going to have, going to have a look at, look at that. Yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's a decent decent little chunk of change there i mean comes after you know yesterday i was talking about canada 11 million dollars for some inflatable boats and what, and what have you which is a bit scattergun but 13 million for cybersecurity that that's that's pretty good i'll have, have a look at that and apologies on of course it was keevstar keevstar the mobile net that, that was that was hacked a few weeks ago and brought down for uh, for three or four days and that's it for me david thank you very much tom francis Turley. Thanks, David. I want to choose a lighter but still revealing story for my final thought today. This is one for my fellow cat lovers. It's an article in Politico called War Cats. Ukraine enlists feline friends in fight against Russia. And it's full of not only insightful reflections on the role of little puss cats in war with photos, but also on the information battlefront. It describes lightheartedly why cats have become so important for Ukrainian soldiers and how Ukrainian social media is full, it says, of felines showing how they help soldiers as emotional support animals, attracting donations to the military and also fighting invaders of their own, mice. Now, these cats sadly arrive at Ukrainian army positions from nearby villages, towns destroyed by war, having been abandoned by their owners and seeking human protection from shelling drone strikes, minefields, etc. 
Who else remembers when in the first days of the war those dogs were left chained by the roadside by their owners, fleeing major cities? It always stuck with me that. When this scared little creature comes to you, says one soldier in the piece, seeking protection, how could you say no? We are strong, so we protect weaker things. We go into the same awful circumstances as they do, just because Russia showed up on our land. Some adopt them and take them home. Others prefer to keep them in the trenches and even pass them on to other units during rotation, said an army spokesperson. Interestingly, the piece also says these cats fight their own battles, as I say, against the mice that infest the trenches and chew Starlink satellite comms cables, car wiring, destroying food supplies, military gear and even nipping the fingers of sleeping soldiers. Rather amusingly, anyone who's owned a cat will sympathise with this. I think one cat disappeared for 18 days until he was found by Ukrainian soldiers at a position several kilometres away, presumably with better food on offer, chilling with other cats. Uh, The soldier says... He just needed some love. I called it a vacation. We didn't take it personally. Interestingly, Russian propaganda, this is why I really chose this piece, apart from emphasising the role of cats for morale and also those utilities I've just described. Russian propaganda, I remember early on in the war, jumped on the story of Ukraine mobilising cats as a sign of their desperation. But what's been fascinating, and the piece talks about this, is that they then began publishing their own stories about cats on the Russian side of the front line, presumably in order to try and humanise the military in the wake of the ongoing reports about war crimes in Butcher and elsewhere. One Moscow tabloid ran a story about a cat called Bullet, who protected the commander of a motorised rifle unit by climbing onto his head to warn him of mines and enemy fire. Another outlet published a video of a soldier stroking a cat described as the unit's therapist. So this really is a sort of battlefront in this information war. And anyone who spends a lot of time on social media looking into the conflict will be very familiar of seeing these kind of images, particularly with soldiers in jeeps and in trenches, etc. So it is interesting. Obviously, the bond between humans and animals in war is as old as conflict itself but that doesn't mean it's any less impactful and interesting and important and just as a side note if you have a cat pictures always gratefully received by me on twitter sadly i'm not allowed to have one in my flat in london so i have to live in fantasy i've gone as far as naming what my future cat will be called i'll give you a clue it's a character from dickens who's jolly and eats too much two admirable traits in a cat and so i have to live vicariously through others we were chatting about this, actually, before we went on air. Dom, have you ever had any pets? Sorry, I wasn't expecting that. Sorry, <laughs> sorry I, was, I was elsewhere. I was looking at, looking at Roland's face, watching you talking about cats and your fictitious name. It's a picture of uh, confused aggression. I would say. <laughs> uh, but no, I did used to, have a, I used to have a dog called Sid, a little Parsons, Jack Russell. I used to take on patrol in Northern Ireland. And Sid once did a shit outside Martin McGuinness's house. And I think I compromised the whole team by being very English and thinking, scrambling around for a bag to pick it up, pick up this turd and then find a bin to throw it in. But yeah, that was Sid. That was Sid the dog. Well, thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Can we get back to what we're supposed to be talking about after 500 episodes of this? Roland Oliphant, would you like the very final words? I missed a question from Dom. Dom messaged me a question while I was talking about, about, about Gherkin Strelkov, about what kind of how he would have taken the demise of, of Evgeny Prigozhin. I don't think it would have surprised him. I mean, he was arrested after the coup attempt, with which we don't think he was involved, but he was one of these nationalist voices who had to be shut down. But in the run-up to that, 
I was just looking back on some of the reporting we did or some of the um some of these episodes of this podcast that we were doing in the kind of first half of 2023 <laughs> talking about this weird confrontation between this guy called Yevgeny Prigozhin and and Putin we're like, is, is this going to get to a no it can't, couldn't possibly get to someone trying to march on Moscow that's ridiculous but for whatever reason Gherkin was ahead of most of us I mean he he saw it coming he was talking about that these are the dynamics in this country this is the way these wars work because he's obsessed with war and he's obsessed with 1917 and so on and Prigozhin's crossed the Rubicon and it's going to something's going to happen so he's kind of on the money I don't, th- I don't think it would have surprised him really that after that one of them had to go there was no room I'm not sure it really would have surprised him that much when the FSB knocked at his door in the morning and took him away last July what about other things my final thought I mean I'm thinking I'm thinking I'm sure you've been talking about this about this great big discussion about does Britain need conscription and does NATO have to be at war with Russia in the next three years and things like that I mean that's I'm sure you've already discussed it um, but it's it's something I'm chewing on a lot. I mean, partly because I think that off the back of the failure of the counteroffensive last year, it's forced a really fundamental rethink in amongst the Western establishment about um, what's going on here. Um, and I think the comments you've seen, you had from British general yesterday, but we've also had it from Dutch general and a, and a Norwegian general, and everybody's thought it's clearly a kind of coordinated thing. They've all decided they need to get this message across now, whether it's for us, the public, or for the politicians, or for both. I think that reflects this crystallization of this fundamental dilemma, which is that, okay, this war is not going to be over by Christmas. Like the big push, the lightning strike failed. There's no obviously way to win it in short order, even this year or next year. So the question is, okay, either you're going to, is the war going to run for years, in which case we need to invest massively to, to support Ukraine and do that if we're still going to pursue victory. If you're not going to pursue victory in Ukraine, as the greater West, and accept the, the hit, then basically you're, that's the global West defeated in the eyes of the world. That's a massively triumphant Russia with a battle-hardened, successful army looking to come knocking. So in a way, saying, yes, we need to, NATO needs to be ready. We need to get into this kind of late 1930s kind of mindset. Um, I think it reflects that choice. And it could either be like the West has to invest in its defense capabilities and its, and its industrial effort to, to help Ukraine to continue to pursue victory, which is a lot of people still say. Or, as I believe I saw someone, someone articulate the other day, if you're going to accept that Ukraine, if the West takes the hit and loses, then you've got to be ready for the next big fight because there will be one. And maybe there's a realization that, oh, yeah, actually, suddenly we realize this is a fundamental, fundamental struggle. Anyway, I'd better stop waffling, really. But it's, it's, it's preying on my mind. And I've been talking to a lot of people on that theme. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it.
To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 